Let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We continue our series in this book. I felt a little guilty at times because we're biting off large chunks. So today we're uh, only going to read about 22 verses instead of the whole chapter. Next week it's going to be actually a rather small unit we're going to look at, uh, which I hope will be helpful for us. But um, we come to really a tricky part of the letter to Hebrews. <coughs> a lot of it's tricky because most of us don't go to the tabernacle daily. Uh, most of us aren't going to the temple. We're not here killing goats every day, as they would back in the uh, Old Testament. And so some of this language and much of what is talked about here can feel out of place. I ask you to trust me that by the end of this, we're going to see it's highly relevant. But let's come to the text, shall we? Hebrews 9, uh, we'll begin in verse 1. We'll read through verse 22. Let's... Um, Let's be reminded that this is worthy of our faith. It's worthy of your time. It's worthy of your effort because it's God himself who speaks to you. Let's hear the author of Hebrews. Let's hear that God. Beginning in verse 1, we're told that now even the first covenant, speaking there of the covenant with Moses, the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the, table, the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared... But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that's not, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, 
since it's not in force as long as the one who made it alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask him to bless what may feel like a complicated part of Scripture, but is worthy of our attention. Let's pray. Lord, purify our hearts, not just our skin. Help our consciences to see that Christ is best. We pray this in his name. Amen. The author of this book, you may have realized by now, is is not just teaching us. There's a lot that we just read that's teaching. There's a lot we just read that's teaching. But maybe if you've been with us, you've realized he's not just teaching us, he's actually testing you. The, The letter of Hebrews is really a test. He's not just giving information, but as he gives us this real T-bone steak about Jesus Christ, which is chapter 9. Chapter 9 is really a, 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 a huge ribeye. It's a ribeye of the gospel, but the problem is, friends, our appetites are not ready for it. That's what he covered before. He mentioned this before. He said, look, we're not used to working out our spiritual muscles. We're not used to exercising in the gym of Jesus. He's been teaching us that that Jesus is a high priest of our salvation. He's been talking about this, and he's been comparing everything. He's been comparing what is old to what is new. He's he's done it with the old priest and the new high priest, Jesus Christ. And now he comes and he says, I want to give you one more picture. I want to give you one more picture between the old and the new. I always get really worried, by the way, as a side note, when people tell me that the book of Revelation is their favorite book in the New Testament. I get a little worried when I meet somebody. Not that it's a great book. I, I love the book myself. But <clears throat> the book of Revelation is a challenging book because it's full of pictures. It's full of pictures. You may see a lot of words in your Bible, but I see pictures. And the reality is that Revelation and Hebrews are similar in that they give you pictures. They give you dramatic imagery. And the issue with the dramatic imagery is that it can be challenging to understand. It's hard to see the word pictures. They're a bit strange. They're a bit alien. And yet we have to trust as we come to what is a hard section to maybe track or follow with. We have to trust what the book of Hebrews itself tells us about itself. Hebrews chapter 13 says this whole letter is just a word of encouragement. It's meant to encourage you. It's meant to encourage you. It's meant to encourage you that Jesus Christ is able to save you to the uttermost. He's able to save you to the uttermost. And chiefly, this is a word that encourages Christians because it helps you love the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what you want if you had to pick? If you could pick the ability, if your superpower was loving Jesus Christ, wouldn't you take that? I think any thoughtful person would say yes. And here we see tonight 
Jesus Christ is so marvelous because he is a far greater priest who ministers in a far better location than anything in the old days. That's what the author does. He uses comparisons. He says, look at the old, now look at Jesus. Look at the old, now look at Jesus. It's like when I go to the eye doctor and they pull up the big lenses and they say, is it one or is it two? Or is it two or is it three? And I'm so confused, I can't tell the difference really, but we need to be able to tell the difference with this. With this. Far more important than my glass prescription. So we see first here, if you want... um, an outline, so to speak. We see first that Jesus Christ ministers in a different location. He ministers in a different location than the Old Testament. Look at verse 1 and verse 2. We're told the regulations in the Old Covenant, the author of Hebrews says. We get a lot of details about the tabernacle under Moses. We're told it has two sections. It has the outer court. It has the inner holy of holies, the most holy place. The outer court where the priest could go in and they could make the sacrifices You know, of course, not everybody could be a priest, but some people could. They would make daily sacrifices for the sins of the people. They'd make other types of sacrifices, too. This is how you get meat if you were in ancient Israel. You'd go to the temple. You'd offer it. It would be sacrificed, and you would get a hamburger at the end. But we're told that only one of those priests, once a day, uh, once a year, what Leviticus 16 calls the Day of Atonement, the high priest was allowed to go into the second room, the secret room, the inner room, the holy of holies. And once a year there, he would offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. He would wear the robes. They'd have bells on to help the people understand that this man went into the presence of a holy God. And if he had failed in some minute detail of preparation, if his heart was not cleansed, if his body was not cleansed, he could be struck dead by a holy God if he himself had not atoned for his own sins. And yet through all this preparation, through all this deep solemnity, a God of infinite holiness would provide them with forgiveness. And yet the author says, here's the big problem with all of that. That was just on the earth. That was just on the earth. That was just on the earth. And they did it every single day of the year. And one of them got to do it one special day of the year. But if you were a believer in the Old Testament, you were certainly not allowed to do it unless you were the right family, unless you were the right one within that that, that right family. And by this, the Holy Spirit teaches, this is verse six, uh, verse eight, excuse me. By this, the Holy Spirit teaches us that the way into God's presence was not yet open. The way in to get to God was not yet open. It was not open. It was not democratic. It was not for all of God's people. All they had were the earthly pictures. They had to look at the earthly pictures. And the earthly pictures reminded them that the actual death of animals doesn't really do anything for humans. Because they keep on having to do it. And it doesn't do it eternally. It doesn't do it forever. Because they keep on having to do it and repeat it. So that's the old. But by comparison... The author says, our Lord Jesus has gone into the very presence of God. That's why he dies. And as he dies, the great temple veil is ripped in two. The temple no longer serves its function because Christ fulfills its purpose. We don't need a priest going in and out and killing the animals and slicing their throats open and having the blood gush out. 
Because Christ, with his blood and his sacrifice, has given that once for all. What a beautiful day that was. And so they can look at the blood of the bulls. They can look at the blood of the goats. And they could say, how can an animal outweigh, if you put it on the scales, how can the blood of an animal outweigh the blood of a man? How can the blood of a bull or a goat, even many bulls and many goats, how can that outweigh the the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and his blood? It was unworthy. It was powerless. You see, Christ on the altar of Calvary lays himself bare to God as one sacrifice for all time. He has gone into God's very presence. He only needed to do it once. He did it once. So he offers a better sacrifice in a better location, heaven itself, not simply earth. But second, we see here that Jesus Christ offers a better sacrifice because it has better effects. Better sacrifice, better location, better sacrifice, better effects. The real issue, and this is what the author says in verse 9 and verse 10, the real issue is that they only deal with food and drink in the old days. Under the old covenant, it's only food and drink. It's only washings. It's just for the body. It's just for the flesh. This is verse 13 as well. It just purifies the flesh. It's external, in other words. That's the issue. The blood sprinkled was only on the outside of the bodies. Moses throws the blood, and it hits its sprinkles like some sick shampoo on the people's heads and the bodies. But it's just their flesh. But what has Christ done? Christ has brought about the circumcision of the heart. He's brought about internal benefits, not just external ones. His blood can bring about forgiveness of our sins. It cleanses far more than external praise, than attaboys from your friends. It cleanses far more than feeling good or getting pepped up. And I suppose this is where we begin to see, hopefully, just a little glimmer of why this difficult chapter, this picture, this comparison game is so vital for your life. Because every day, your conscience convicts you. Every day, your guilt, the deep part of your conscience says you have not done well today. Remember Macbeth? Shakespeare? Lady Macbeth? They have the doctor there. The doctor's making the notes. What is Lady Macbeth doing? She's rubbing her hands together. She sees a spot. She's a murderer, right? She sees a spot. She says, out, damned and spot, out. She could be here tonight with us. Blots on her conscience. Blots on my conscience. The monsters from your past you can't rub out. No matter how many good deeds, no matter all the good karma you do, no matter the comfort you get to have in this world, no matter how much you can achieve or accrue on a day-to-day basis, the sad and sick thing is you can ask any celebrity, ask any athlete who's won the big game, ask them how they feel the day after. They will tell you the exact same thing. It's never enough. It's never enough. I succeed at all I have. It's never enough. It's never enough to wipe out the shame, never enough to wipe out the guilt. Nothing can remove the blot because all you and I try to do is balance the scales, try to balance the scales a little bit. 
when what we need is the declaration of peace from God himself. Lady Macbeth was complicit in murder, but unless you think Jesus lies to you, you've been complicit in murder too. You've killed him too. Not just him though. Everybody you talk to. An angry word here. A false suggestion there. An envious look. Like Rachel with Jacob, you go and you get upset. We can go through all the commandments and realize that you come here tonight before Jesus Christ with dark lots, dark lots. And for some of us, whenever this is even talked about in church, you know, or from the pulpit or with Christians, like the shields go up. We get very defensive. The shutters are drawn. We don't like a physician touching us where we hurt. I have made a dentist appointment this week. I was very happy because they didn't have any appointments until November. Because I don't want to go to the dentist, but I know I need to. I don't want to go. I'm so happy I can wait till November. I don't like the dentist. If you do, come talk to me afterwards. We'll have a conversation. I don't like the dentist probing with his tools and touching the nerve and touching the gums. But at least I understand that if the dentist doesn't examine it, there's going to be pain. And the pain ain't going away. See, one of the things that the author of Hebrews is doing for us tonight is saying, feel the pain. Feel the pain of your sin. You need to realize that if you don't deal with that dull ache in your soul, it's one thing not to deal with a toothache, but if you don't deal with your soul ache, it ain't going away. Allow the word of God tonight to be a double-edged sword that pierces your soul and pierces your heart. Realize you've not come to God for forgiveness and you need it. There was once a a pastor who who was asked to meet a very famous celebrity physician. um, And this physician was troubled. They met and and the, the doctor asked the pastor what advice he would give after telling him all the issues in his life, all the problems with his marriage, all this, you know, he was a workaholic. And the pastor simply asked the doctor one question. Have you ever sought forgiveness? The doctor screamed, yelled, got up, got his bag, left, and never saw the guy again. The pastor said afterwards, what would you expect a minister of God to do? What else would you expect a minister of God to do? We don't pay pastors to ignore the gospel. We don't pay doctors to ignore the pain, but to help our bodies get better. And the same thing is with the minister of the word, to help us to heaven, to help our souls get better. Friends, if you're going to get to heaven, stop hiding from God. Stop, Stop hiding from God. I mean, how foolish it would be when Jesus Christ has done everything needful This is verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I mean, think about it. If all the bloody animal dying, if that couldn't do it, what do you think you're going to do in your life better than offering up sacrifices? I mean, what, what, what more do you think you can do with your life to deal with the condemnation that lies within? Nothing, of course. But Jesus Christ, in this new day, in this heavenly covenant, has done everything you need. He has done everything necessary to pardon your sin. He has done it to clean up your conscience. He can set you free from the slavery of hiding from God all your life. 
He'll let you know that as the song says, you can go into the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ your own. So a better location, heavenly tabernacle, a better effect, a better sacrifice. Then thirdly and lastly, Christ, we're told here, mediates a better covenant with a better inheritance. A better covenant with a better inheritance. And this really is the trickiest part of the whole bit, the, the seemingly most complicated part of the whole chapter. But don't worry, it only seems complicated. I think it's actually pretty easy. I'm beginning in verse 15. There's all this talk about mediating a new covenant, a death that has occurred. Verse 16, a will's involved. And all this conversation about uh, first covenant and second covenant. And what does it all mean? I think it's very simple. You have to realize this word covenant in secular Greek use in the time period was often translated, even they do it here, verse 16, as will or testament. We don't have our probate lawyer with us this evening, but I suppose you could speak with him about it if you want more details on what a will is or a testament is. But the author of Hebrews is telling us simply that God's covenant with us works like a will. God's covenant with us works like a will. How does a will work? Now, if you have a will, you know how it works. It's not doing anything for you right now. You have to die for it to take effect. That's the whole purpose of the will, the, the last testament. You don't get the money, you don't get the estate, you don't get the blessings of the inheritance until the person dies. And this was the case, the author tells us, this was the case, verse 18, uh, in the first covenant. Their blood had to be shed, something had to die, animals died, and you got the benefits. Animals died, and you got the benefits. And yet now the author is saying, hold up, with Jesus Christ, his blood shed, his perfect, spotless, human blood shed, his sinless, stainless blood shed, releases into Christians' hands, into your hands, not pictures of benefits, but real benefits, lasting benefits, eternal benefits. Remember how Christ talks in John 17, verse 24? He says, Father, I'm going to give you my last will. Father, here's my last will. I want those you have given me to be with me and share my glory. Jesus wants you to be with him. Jesus, in his perfect glory, he wants you to share that. He wants you to share his perfect wisdom. You don't get there by killing a goat. But Jesus says, Father, when I die for their sin, may that open the door to see my glory. May that open the door to see my glory. We have the real deal here. Now, some of y'all may know that I, I enjoy art. I took a few art history classes in college. There's a particular artist I enjoy. <clears throat> Not a very famous one, I suppose. Maybe more famous these days. Henry Osawa Tanner. Henry, Henry Osawa Tanner. He was a, uh, a black artist. He wrote a lot of cool paintings. Um, I want you to know that my family actually owns one of his paintings. We actually own Tanner's uh, Women Leaving the Cross. It's a beautiful picture of the women uh, leaving from, well, the cross of Christ. My family owns the painting. And I plan to give it to my wife when I die. I think that will please her. Do you want to know how much it's worth? It's worth about $50. It's a print. It's hanging in my study. Just a copy. Just a copy. I still love it. 
I wouldn't have it unless it told me of a greater Jesus Christ. A greater Christ dying on the cross. The real Christ dying on the cross. That's the difference between the old and the new. The old was a print. The old was a copy. The old was a working model. Now we have Jesus Christ. Let me just clear up something here for a second, by the way. Jesus is not better like an alternative is better. You may be an Apple guy. You may be a PC guy. You may have a, a Samsung phone or an Apple phone. You may be a Ford or a guy or a Chevy gal. Jesus is not better in that way. He's not better in the sense of an alternative. He is also not better in the sense of a replacement. You know, I, I have a, a, an iPhone 8, I think it is. And at some point in time, I'm going to need to get a newer iPhone and get a replacement version. Jesus is not like, it's not better like a replacement is better, longer battery life or whatever the case is. He is better because he's the fulfillment. Jesus Christ is better because he is the full blossom of the rose, better than the bud. But the blossom of the rose, the flower of the rose contains all that was in the bud and so much more. He is not an alternative to the rosebud. He's not a replacement of the rosebud. The blossom develops out of the bud and gives far more. This is why, friends, we don't look to Old Testament Israel and say, well, they were saved one way and we're saved a different way. This is why we don't believe that Jesus Christ uh, replaces or the church replaces Israel. We're saying Jesus Christ is the new Israel. He fulfills it and he fulfills all the promises given to Israel. That's what the book of Hebrews is talking about. Christ is better. Christ is so great. Not an alternative, not a replacement. I guess the problem is, of course, that we're not Jewish, huh? Isn't that the problem with all this stuff right here? This is the reason why we don't like going to Hebrews in some ways, because we're not killing animals. We're not going to temples. We're not uh, uh, Messianic Jews. I suppose that would be really interesting for them. And in fact, many Messianic Jews use this book, which is great. But what about us? Despite my curls, I don't know how much Jewish background I have. What about us? I think, friends, we suffer from the same issue. We just put it in different words. We suffer from the same issue of turning back to something earthly instead of the glory of the heavenly Christ. We turn Well, we turn to the Christianity that's simply the old Southern variety. You know the Southern variety. I hear it at funerals. I I think I hear most of the Southern variety whenever I go to funerals. And I hear well-meaning people say, oh, she passed. And I have to bite my tongue because I want to be a nice person. And I want to not say the question that's in the tip of my tongue. Passed where? Past where? Where'd you pass to? Did your Christianity, friends, go beyond passing somewhere? Does yours actually go into heaven itself? Does it do it right now? Because it can. Does your Christianity pass right into heaven? And particularly in the sorrow and the loss of a loved one, in the death of a loved one, can you that then truly as a Christian say, you're in a better place, as we also often hear. Do you know why it's a better place? Because there's a better sacrifice and a better mediator and a better covenant. 
You see, friends, he is the high priest. He is a sacrifice. He comes with his blood. He enters the full presence of God, not in a wooden building, but in the heavenly tabernacle. He is the real deal. You see, see, the problem with the old sanctuary and the problem with the sanctuary that you come to so often is that you keep away sinners. And I keep away sinners. The problem with our hearts and the problem with our version of Christianity is that we tend to keep away sinners. But what does Christ say? Why is he better? Why is his worship better? Because it doesn't restrict coming into his presence to one guy from one family once a year. But he says all the time, every guy, every gal, come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden. He welcomes sinners. He does not say what the old covenant tabernacle said. Don't approach God. He says, you can approach God through me. He doesn't say only one person can enter. He says every person can enter. He doesn't say you can only come once a year. He says you can come every day, every moment even, into God's presence. He doesn't say you need to offer a sacrifice again and again and again and again and again. He says it's been offered once. And isn't this what so many of us are trying to do? We're trying to offer up every day, every week. If I can just give a little more, then I'll be good with God. If I can just do a little more then I'll feel better about myself. If I can just get that one friend, then I'll be whole again. If I can get that one job, if I can just try a little bit more. No, Christ says, my sacrifice has done all things needful for you once for all on Calvary. Never to be repeated. And perhaps best of all, he does not say this is a superficial, fake, external self-righteous thing. He says, this is the most profound of all realities. He doesn't say it's a copy. He says, it's the real thing. The son of God has truly and fully and really paid for all the sins of his people completely and perfectly. So the point he's making, why would you want to go back to anything else when Jesus Christ is so far better? And I guess our real issue, friends, is not that we're Jews, but our, our issue is that we're externalist. We're formalist. It is entirely possible for uh, Protestants who have right doctrine, so to speak, to do the exact same thing as the Jews did, to trust in the rituals, to trust in the sacrament of baptism or communion by itself, to trust in your prayers, to trust in your habits, to forget the importance of personal trust in Christ. It's possible to live, perhaps even more insidious, to live at a distance from God, to feel as though I can never really come to him, or I had that one moment back when I was a young guy or a young gal, or I had that one, one season in my life that was really meaningful, but I can't get back to that. It's possible to feel that he only hears at special times, you know, Christmas and Easter times, it's a constantation for you to live at a distance from God, not near to him, not living by faith. As if somehow his sacrifice is not good enough. How many of God's people live at a distance from him for days or weeks or months or even longer as if the way was not open? You have the privilege, friends, to speak to God every day. You have the privilege to hear him talk to you every day. But I think more, even worse, even more dangerous a temptation, friends, is for us to act as if Jesus Christ did not die for my sins on Calvary. You know people like this. You know this is the temptation you live under. 
the kind of Christian who is ashamed, inhibited, paralyzed by one thing, guilt, a guilty conscience, crippled by a sense of failure, shortcoming, wrongdoing. I can't be the person I meant to be. I failed too much in the past. And you replay and you replay all of your failures and you replay all of your shortcomings and you sink into depression and you sink into despair and you plead with God to forgive you, but you never feel forgiven. You plead with God to forgive you and you never feel forgiven. Hebrews is saying Christ has done it. And if you come to God through Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. Nothing more. You don't need to atone for it. You don't need to make up for your failures. You don't need to be really, 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 really good this week so that God will forgive you. He has forgiven you. That's why the Jews can never feel forgiven in a real sense. They would have to kill somebody else the next day. And even the great day of atonement was only good up to that point. You go home that night and you sin again. You got to wait a whole year for it. You need fresh forgiveness. The great problem, friends, is that we're living in the Old Testament and we should live in the New Testament. So what are you to do? I think verse 14 speaks to it. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? For what purpose? To serve the living God. Get on with your life. Get on with your life. Give yourself to serving God. Know that your sins have been dealt with by Jesus Christ. Not that we aren't to repent, not that we aren't to come for him. Of course we are. But you're free now to serve God. You're free to do it. You don't need to torture yourself over what's happened in the past. But you can give yourself because your conscience has been purified from dead works. You can give yourself to serve the living God. May he help us in some small way to grasp some of these big pictures, some of these truths for his sake and for his service and for our good this week. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you and we acknowledge that our consciences, well, they accuse us. We know that Satan himself loves to accuse us. We know that our sin uh, wells up within. We know that the temptation to go back to the old days we didn't really know you that well. That's always a temptation, Lord. We ask that, yes, you would forgive us, but more importantly, that you would call us to serve you, to press on, to look to the upward call, to trust in you, and to know that your son, his sacrifice is better than anything we can give. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.